Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. And for us at the Fromer Guides, it was a big week. We saw many months of hard, hard work come to fruition this week with the publication of four brand spanking new travel guides. One of those travel guides, though, we had to, for the first time in a long time, add a paper insert to. That book was our Hawaii guide. It was printed before the devastating fires in Maui. And so our insert acknowledged that some of the material wouldn't be up to date. It also gave people links to fromers.com because we are covering the recovery of Maui there. And it also told people where they could donate if they wish. But the fact is, the vast majority of Hawaii is still open for business. And so I wanted to have our wonderful guide author, Jeannie Cooper, on the show to talk about what's happening in Maui and to talk about the great stuff that you can see and do on the other islands and on the parts of Maui. Uh, that weren't affected. Uh, so here she is. Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show, Jeannie. So nice to have you back. Hi, Pauline, or as we say here, aloha. It's great to be back aloha. with you again. Yes, that's what how I should have led this off. So let's let's discuss Maui first. Um, it just last week, or was it the week before, the island officially opened back up to to tra- tourism, right? Well, to be clear, the island. Yeah as a whole has been open to tourism almost in the since the week after the terrible fires of August 8th and 9th and that's because the vast majority of the island south maui which is home to resorts of wailea and, and the area known as kihei the central maui and the road to hana and east maui uh, none of that was impacted by the fires although of course many many people have been impacted by the loss of either family members or friends uh, who sure. businesses, all of that. But to be clear, um, opening of West Maui, West Maui, which is where Lahaina is located, has been closed to visitors and a portion of that reopened October 8th. And that includes the resort of Kapalua down to south to an area called Kahana. Now, Lahaina is probably the most southern part of West Maui. And of course, that could be years in rebuilding that's completely closed to non-residents. You know, it is a disaster scene and it's it's quite right. tragic. But the good news for visitors is that much of Maui is and has remained open, and uh, the beautiful resorts of West Maui are starting to reopen uh, in a phased sense. And I'm sure people are expecting that all of West Maui will be reopened uh, by the what we call the festive season here, the uh, winter holidays. Now, that's controversial that it was reopened. There are some residents of Maui who, who don't want visitors back yet, right? It, that, that is true. It's been difficult. As you can imagine, people who lived through the trauma of you know running for their lives, um, who've lost homes, businesses, and above all, you know, family members, not everyone is ready to go back to work. But the, I think both the state and the county, Maui County, which includes the islands of Molokai and Lanai, uh, are trying to balance the needs of everyone on the island because this isn't economy that's dependent on tourism with yes. the sensitivity of 
uh, helping traumatized and displaced people. And so that's one reason why um, the area known as Ka'anapali, which is just north of Lahaina, that will be the last uh, phase to reopen because that is where the most number of residents who lost their homes are currently being housed. And there's a 100% commitment not to displace any residents uh, in favor of visitors. The Red Cross and FEMA and other um, organizations are working of course, to find more permanent homes uh, for sure. these people. But yes, there's there was concern that it might be too soon too for you know your server or your luau person to go back to work. Uh, but I will say the good thing in Hawaii is that we have a pretty generous unemployment benefit system and emotional trauma is it does make you eligible for benefits. So those who do not want to go back to work right now, my understanding, are not being required to. But uh, many of the business yeah. do want to be back at work and to have expressed that on social media and elsewhere. So I think if you if you do go, it's the, the main message everyone is communicating is, hey, travel with compassion, respect, kindness, all the things we would hope you would normally do, but now more so than ever. Right. And some specific advice that I think the governor gave was don't take photos in the burn zone and and post them to social media. Uh, be, be sensitive that that people don't want that to be gawked at. Yeah, that's that's there are people's, you know, ashes potentially still in there. And it's it's a deep scar emotionally and physically right now on the on the landscape, too. And again, you can have a wonderful vacation on Maui, not even going near uh, Lahaina. So you'd really have to go out of your way to to go there and be that gawker. And then another suggestion was, as tempting as it might be, you know, don't ask your server, hey, you know, what was your experience of the fire? You know, just in case it was a, you know, particularly oh. painful one, just act as you would normally would with the, the appropriate amount of uh, friendliness and kindness, but not nosiness, <laughs> for sure. And, huh, and one good thing advice. that, uh, another piece of advice, which is also, sh- you know, we should all be doing, but it's really patronize local businesses, ones where the money, you know, stays on the island. And by that, I mean, the temptation is sometimes there to go to a McDonald's or a chain store because we know it. And of course, those are hiring uh, local people as employees. But when you go to a mom and pop restaurant or an island only chain, then you know 100% of what you're spending is staying in the islands. And that's what people really need, right, too. And by doing that, you'll also have some wonderful experiences that you can't have anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. And what I loved about the article you did for us on Fromers.com is you went very straightforwardly into what has been lost and, and really tragically, a lot of the cultural heritage sites of Maui are now gone. But then you also tell people what you can see instead and how you can give back, whether that's monetarily or otherwise. Uh, So let's talk about the cultural heritage sites, what's gone and what people can see instead. Right. Well, as many people probably have learned by now, there was a period in Hawaii's history where Lahaina was actually the capital of the Hawaiian kingdom. Uh, It wasn't for that long a period, but a number of royalty are buried in its cemeteries. It has a long history of habitation even before the Hawaiian monarchy that we associate with uh, King Kamehameha the Great. And so there are sites that were also built by the missionaries. Then later in the uh, plantation era, I'll give some examples. You have the old Lahaina courthouse, which held these days held 
the Lahaina Heritage Museum with wonderful artifacts from both ancient Hawaii history and the whaling era of the late uh, 1700s, early 1800s. And then you had the Wohing Museum and Cookhouse, which was this, you know, not very large, but beautifully ornate temple. Uh, It was built by Chinese immigrants in 1912 and had been very lovingly maintained. And then you had Waiola Church, one of the oldest churches in Hawaii, and certainly the first church on Maui, uh, which was founded in 1823, again, still during the Hawaiian monarchy period uh, by King Kamehameha's favorite wife. And that was Hmm. burned. But there is some good news in there. So many of these buildings in this historic heritage district had been studied by architects and documented over the years. There's a feeling that they can be uh, rebuilt, just as you think about like the center of Frankfurt or Dresden, uh, these places in Europe that were bombed. And yes, they're not the original buildings, but they look exactly like (laughs) they've done or or, (laughs) Notre Dame lost its tower. And so I think there's hopes that a lot of that can be rebuilt. I went to Warsaw a couple of years back, and at the end of World War II, only 3% of the buildings in Warsaw still remained. And if you traveled there today, you would never know. I mean, they they really very, very uh, carefully recreated the historic look of that city, and it's a wonderful place to visit even today. Uh, So hopefully Maui can do the same. Yes, I think that's the hopes for it. And then in the meantime, on the other side of the island, you have this wonderful, almost as equally significant uh, town of Wailuku. It's home to the uh, county government buildings and some state government buildings. And it's got beautiful old churches. It has a wonderful museum that has a lot of Hawaiian artifacts, art, natural history items, a great collection of land snail shells, among other things. And, uh, you know, it's that's very close to the airport. It's a wonderful uh, side trip to make sometime while you're on Maui. Well, that's good to hear. And the banyan tree, the famous banyan tree, looks like it's going to survive, right? Uh, That's what arborists are saying. Now, this tree was planted 150 years ago. It's grown to be more than a city block, sort of long and wide banyan trees. they, They sort of spread and then they send down roots from up above and then create new trunks. So it's Uh, It's quite a place to wander around, a little bit spooky, but arborists have noticed green shoots. They've been carefully watering it. And the final word, of course, isn't in, but it has been a symbol of uh, hope and resilience for everyone in Hawaii, but particularly those on Maui right now. So we're we're feeling good about that. That is right in the center of historic uh, Lahaina near uh, a number of those um, structures that I mentioned right by the harbor. So it would be a wonderful gift if that uh, did survive. Yeah, definitely. So tell me about the rest of the Hawaiian islands. Are you seeing depressed visitation numbers to, say, Oahu or Kauai or the other islands because of what happened on Maui? Uh, No, I'd say it's the reverse. Now, keep in mind that this is a sort of a shoulder season in Hawaii. There's really no low season. But typically, you have a little bit of a drop uh, in fall after the summer vacations and before the Christmas or Thanksgiving holidays. And in fact, what you've seen is uh, quite a number of people who were set to go to Maui, particularly in the area of West Maui that we've been speaking about. They, um, sometimes with the help of their lodgings provider, um, switched their uh, just switched their vacation to Kauai or the Big Island in particular, Hawaii Island where I live. So I've met a number of people uh, who've said, yeah, we were going to be on Maui this week, but 
you know, the airlines, we were able to switch our flight here and we're having a great time. And they're looking forward to going back to Maui, but they just decided sure. this year, you know, they would would try something else. And so, yeah, so that's been kind of fun for the other islands to see like, oh right. gosh, uh, you know, we, we have more people at this time than we normally do. And here on Hawaii Island, it's also Ironman week and a cruise oh. ship was in Kona yesterday. So it's been quite bustling. What's happening with the volcano on the big island? Is it still putting on a show at all or not so much? <laughs> well, it's funny. Uh, the, the Hale Ma'umau, the, the creator in uh, Kilauea Volcano, has had put on a number of shows in the past year. Um, it had a brief one for about 10 days in September that stopped. But then last week, um, it started. there started being uh, elevated earthquake activity. Now, this is like Ooh. 140 little rumbles. You, you might feel them if you're there. They're not San Francisco-style 1906 earthquakes by any means. But that does put people... Uh, on notice that there could be another eruption coming soon. Uh, the the large eruption of 2018, which sent lava to the sea, was quite dramatic, had a crater collapse. That also began with a series of the, these type of earthquakes. But one thing the volcanologists here, here will tell you, you know, it's like, you just don't know until you know. That's why they study it. They, they try and detect huh. patterns. But you know, there's yet to be, you know, 100% it's erupting on this day, or it's going to stop that day. So that's what kind of makes it exciting, you know, just common, even if lava itself is not bubbling and fountaining, fountaining in the crater, you're always going to see billows of steam, you'll smell that sulfur, you can walk along cracked areas. And just as last week, a number of uh, trails were closed in the expectation that there could be an eruption coming. So I would just say, stay tuned. (laughs) Wow, interesting. So what were some of the developments uh, that you covered in the last edition of the book? Uh, things that are different in Hawaii that people may not know are different or, or new things that, that you were able to add to the book? Well, one thing I tried to do, Pauline, is reflect the, the movement towards what we call regenerative tourism in this business, which means making a place that you visit better than you found it, not just being sustainable, which is, of course, important, but really trying to give back. And yet I tried to focus also on uh, the ways that you get something back from doing that, that you get to go to a a special place, meet fascinating people, do some hands-on work, very light, typically, uh, nothing backbreaking. And you'll come away with just a, a better understanding both of Hawaiian culture and its amazing ecosystem, and the people you know who live here. Uh, so right. some of those I mentioned are like on my island, if you go up to the Waikoloa Dry Forest Initiative, that's um, a preserve of willy willy trees. It's a very rare tree. It's about six miles up from the beach. You've got- I love and- the name. What, can, what do they look like, <laughs> willy willies? <laughs> well, a lot of the year they're kind of gnarled, but they have this pretty sort of reddish orange bark. And then they oh. have beautiful yellow orange flowers uh, in the summer season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, you can, uh, but there are other native plants there and you have this beautiful view, sweeping view of the coastline. You'll collect native seeds. You'll learn how these plants grow, what what benefits they had to the Hawaiian people and to the local ecosystem and birds. And then you'll get to have free drinks and snacks on this beautiful pavilion if you go do one of these volunteerism (laughs) things. So 
it's lovely. Yeah. And you, it's not a place you can just drop in and visit normally. So it's a great way to uh-huh. see something that, hey, you're not going to see in everyone else's social media feed. So that's one example. A, yeah, that's wonderful. And I, I'm guessing that's probably not in other guidebooks. I think that's one of the things that makes our Fromers Hawaii so special is that we've got such a erudite, heartfelt uh, take on Hawaii uh, that, that, that we really bring in the culture, we bring in the ecosystems, and we also tell visitors how they can have really unique experiences like the one you just discussed. Yes, thank you. Thank you. And it's not that I like to get dirt under my fingernails per se, <laughs> but there are a number of experiences with some very light sort of gardening, weeding, seeding, repotting plants. Um, you can just go to the most some of the most beautiful places. I went to the Lawai Valley. It's part of the National Tropical Botanical Garden on Kauai. It's near the very close to the resort area of Poipu. And if you sign up for their volunteerism activity, you actually get to drive down a sort of a secret road at the back of the valley, uh, come to its nursery where they have some of the rarest plants in the world. You get a private tour of sort of the work that they're doing, the scientists who use things like drones to take clippings of, of rare plants from sea cliffs, for example. Wow. And then uh, you sit in the shade uh, for an hour, maybe like repot tiny ohia lahua seedlings, and it's free. <laughs> you know, and, you, you, and it's like I said, and it's beautiful. And you're in this, you know, incredibly gorgeous uh, space. It's one that I've visited many times on a tour, but this was a very unique experience for me to to do something hands on and see it from a completely different angle. Well, it sounds wonderful. I thank you so much, Jeannie, uh, not only for this interview, but for for really elevating our guidebook to Hawaii. It's really one of our very best, and, and we're so grateful to you. Well, thank you so much, Pauline. It's been a pleasure. What is hospitality at its core, and why is it such an important principle? My guest, Alexandra Hudson, has many thoughts on that matter. She has a thought-provoking new book out. It's called The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. Hey, Alexandra. Wow, it is such a delight speaking with you. I have been so enjoying reading this book. Pauline, thank you. I'm so thrilled to be with you. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about hospitality. In the book, you say that both ends of the hospitality relationship, both the host and the guest, are very vulnerable, but that that's a good thing. Can we unpack that? Absolutely. So the Latin root of the word hospitality is hospice, and that is the root of hospitality and also of hostility. And in the guest-host relationship, there is this duality. Things can go really good, really well, or yeah. really poorly. And I like how that etymology of um, of hospitality and hostility, you know, that that kind of anticipates that the, the two possible outcomes, like... We, when you have someone into your home, it's vulnerable. When you go into someone else's home, it's vulnerable. And, and one reason I included this chapter on hospitality in my book is, to, is that because hospitality at its best and at its history as well 
is this high and noble expression of civility, of just kindness to the stranger. And there is this rich and vibrant tradition of this sort of kindness to the stranger, this ethic of hospitality across history and culture. Part of my lament, I'm someone who loves travel. I do a little bit of travel writing. But part of my lament is that hospitality today is too often reduced to just, you know, hotel reviews and and airline Uh reviews. But it's so much more than that. And it's an essential part of healing our broken world. Right. Well, I mean, you make the point that the Odyssey by Homer is about hospitality. <laughs> he explores who who is hospitable to one another mm-hmm. and who is inhospitable. You look at the cultures of many Middle Eastern countries and hospitality was always a fundamental principle right. because these were folks who were dealing with merchants who were tying the world together. But right now, there are so many more people traveling than there were when these fundamental principles of hospitality to the stranger were put in place. Do you think that's why hospitality feels a little more impersonal nowadays than it than it did back in the days when it would be very unusual to have a, a stranger come into your community? It's a great point, Pauline. So part of the overarching argument in my book is that on one hand, human nature doesn't change. We're the same today as we were at the beginning of our species, whenever that was. and right. uh, But there are things, epiphenomena, things in society that that do change. And, and so, for example, it's easy to hear people say, you know, we're just not as hospitable as we used to be anymore. And, and, and one thing that is different, though, now versus then, back, you know, thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago, travel was the exception and staying in place was the rule. It was expensive. It was dangerous. There was no well-developed network of hospitals. You know, you were on foot. You were on horse. Horses were exorbitantly expensive. So you were on foot. It was dangerous. You can, and mm-hmm. there was no credit cards. Like you carried your money with you. If you, <laughs> right. if you were robbed, you lost literally your life savings. Sure. There, there were, the tra- travel was the exception, not the rule. And staying put was the rule. Today, it's the opposite. It's like we're always on the move, especially in, in America. We're a socially mobile society, but we're also always moving around and always going to other parts of the world. And, you know, before before the ease of travel, before credit cards, if you found yourself in a foreign land without shelter and a meal, you might die. And so right. across history and culture, there was this sort of ethical tradition of hospitality, what you owe the stranger in need just because they're a fellow human being. And even though it might be risky to you to have this complete stranger invited into your home, but you did it. Right. And you make the point at one part part of the book. Let me open it up. I think I marked it. You say that accept hospitality when it's offered. It's ex- easy to make excuses. Yeah. Don't. Be there. Be willing to yeah. learn from the experiences and ideas of others. Remember that everyone has something to teach you. Very rarely will you regret it. Yeah. I think Sometimes it's not even an ethical decision for somebody of whether or not they're going to accept hospitality or put themselves in a guest host relationship. Sometimes it's simple shyness. And I I think remembering that every single person you meet has something to teach you. To me, that is wonderful. That's so profound. It's so true. And we're, we're at core, you know, in our biology, we're neophobes. We fear the novel and going into a new friend's home or a shared space, like that can feel really vulnerable and uncomfortable. Right. Like our biology gears us to, to be skeptical of new things because like what we know is comfortable. We know that's safe, right? 
But also, right. like you, you and your listeners, you travel because we love novelty, right? We, we love like the no- diversity and novelty is the spice of life. And, sure. and that, that's like a muscle. And like curiosity and, and hospitality is a muscle that grows with use. You know, you, you dip your toe in and, and, and start small in and, and a, and a tiny trip and then you want more and you want to do it again and again. So I, I hope that it, it becomes iterative, you know, for your for your readers that you, you, you start small in the small ways, just, just making a bid for affection. Uh, it's vulnerable to go into someone's home. It's vulnerable to invite someone to not just the physical, you know, sense of safety, uh, but we can talk about that. How you know, dining around the table is a, is a vulnerable thing. Like the, there are all these weapons, you know, like these utensils that historically <laughs> have some sources of weapons. Um, but oh my also, goodness, I've never thought of that before. No, that's, we can talk about the history of table manners and why they've evolved huh. to help us share a meal together. So, right. but, but also it's vulnerable to invite someone to, 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 to even say, make a bid for affection, right? We're, we're deeply, you know, you probably know this, that social science has found, sorry, brain, brain science has found that the brain interprets rejection in the same way that it interprets and processes physical pain. And so huh. when, we're, when we're rejected, it hurts. It's hard. Right. And, and uh. it's easy to let ourselves say, okay, you know, we've, we've invited someone into our home or out to coffee or something once or twice now, and they've said no twice, you know, maybe we just don't try again, or maybe we just never try with anyone again. And it's easy to just kind of accept those, expect the, accept those rejections as, as like, you know, reflections of who we are, but how do we keep trying? How do we, how do we not give up that quickly? Because life together is hard. It's fragile. It's vulnerable. It's the best life as well. Right. Sure. It's as we learned, I think during the pandemic, there was to me something really, really painful about being so isolated from my community and from my travel community, because I am somebody who is probably addicted to travel, (laughs) to the novelty of it. And I need to get out there and discover who I am in different social contexts, because it's always different than at home. And it's a wonderful thing to, to learn about yourself in the world. Yes, I completely agree. And um, one thing I think is is worth worth noting that that you know we talked about how the root of hospitality is hospital. Oh, sorry, is a hostility and hospitality. Hospice is that root word. Another right. root uh, word that has its roots in that word is is hospice, but also h- hospital. And, and, huh. and how can we make our lives? places of social healing, tools of social healing in our broken world. And that's one of the beauty, beautiful things of, of travel, that it, that it gives us the, uh, an appreciation for some somehow seeing the diversity of the human experience. Yeah. Let's appreciate its oneness as well. Mm. And, and yeah. as we encounter and see beautiful things, we encounter the sublime. You know, it gives us a sense of awe about the world and about the gift of being human that is so yeah. humbling and so beautiful. Yes, I'll tell you a story, you know, like we've talked about, lot lot is the same, but a lot in, in, in human nature, but there's a lot of things that are different. And one of the things that are different is that we don't depend on one another in the same hmm. way that, that we used to anymore, that, you know, we don't have to knock on a stranger's door to have a place to stay. We make a reservation on Expedia, you know, or through a travel sure. agent, we shop with <laughs> right. paid, right? But um, there was one time where I was confronted with need in a way that I'm not really anymore. So I was a poor student in London. I was a Rotary Scholar doing my master's program there at the London School of Economics. And it was my turn for my fiance and I, or I guess it was my then boyfriend, to travel. To, 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 it was my turn to book our, our trip. And we were going to Ireland right. this time. And I was so negligent. And I waited to the last minute to book our hotel. And there was nothing available. 
all that was available was way out of the price range of a very poor student. And so I reached out to one of my fellow Rotary scholars in London and Dublin and said, hey, like, I'm, I'm coming to town. Any chance, like, you know, one of the host families or Rotary families there might have a guest room or, you know, a couch for, for us to stay on for sure. a few days. And we were just given a name and an address in Dublin. And we showed up and we had no idea what to expect, right? Like, talk about mutual vulnerability. The people taking us in had no idea who we, we were. And we sure. had no idea who they were. And they ushered us in. And Paulina, we were brought into Little Italy. Like it was the most wonderful experience. We, you know, they, they- In Dublin? This, in Dublin, exactly. So it was this beautiful brownstone in Dublin, but this a family from Moderna, Italy had transplanted ah. their entire Italian life in the heart <laughs> of Dublin. They had the prosciutto slicer. They had their wine cellar. They even brought their grandmother in who was hand rolling pasta for us, like to eat that oh night. Like God. it was just- Wow. Their, their balsamic vinegar from Moderna. It was the most wonderful weekend with with um, Paolo and Elisabetta and 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 uh, Elisabetta's mother who made us delicious pasta that night, whose name I forget. But we joke that no one has ever gone to Dublin and eaten so well because all we ate was Italian. <laughs> all we <laughs> But I mean, talk about the, the 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 perils, possible perils, but also potential joys yeah. of 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 taking risks like that, like. It was a mutually beautiful experience. They're now some of our dearest friends now. We see them in Italy like every few years when we go there. We've been oh. home in Modena before and we've been to visit them in Luxembourg. But like how that shared vulnerability, again, there's that duality to that experience, right? But that was an incredibly beautiful uh, yeah. experience that came yeah. out of that shared vulnerability. Well, how great. Well, it's been such a delight reading the book and speaking with you. Thank you so much for appearing on the Firmer Travel Show. Thank you so much for the invitation, Pauline. Before I go, I have two quick announcements. For those of you in the New York City area, I hope you will join me at the International Travel Show on October 26th. I will be speaking at the Javis Center. It should be a really fun time. I think I'm speaking in the noontime hour. So bring along a lunch (laughs) and we'll talk travel before, during, and after the speech. Because I'll be preparing for that I'm not going to have a new podcast next week. I will the week after. So hope you'll join me then. And as always, to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. Watching cable.